We uh, had a busy week at our house getting all the kids back to school, and I'm sure some of you parents can feel that. There was um, a lot of emotions and trying to organize. I probably, I'm not kidding, because four kids, four schools represent about roughly 25 to 30 pace, pieces of paper that I have to fill out per kid. I just, that's all I did. That's all I did was like fill out papers, turn in papers, more papers. I don't even know what I was signing to. I probably was like signing my life to give my children away. And I'm like, here, take all the papers. Um, but we also, you know, this week we, we had, um, some hard news for a member of our community here. And I, I wanted to share that with you and just to make you guys aware, um, there's not really an easy way to start off by saying this or to end by saying this, but I just wanted to make sure you all knew and so that you could, number one, be in prayer, um, but also if there's opportunity for you to step up and help support this family, um, we wanted to let you know that the need is great. Um, Karen Anthony, who has been coming to, to the Grove with her children for probably about 10 years on and off, um, she tragically lost her son, DJ, this week. Um, he was 23. And, um, you know, there's no real easy way to share that news. But she's a mother grieving, family grieving. Um, today, after the service, there's a, a visitation from 1 to 3 at Crisp Funeral Home. And then the service will be at 3 p.m. So whether you knew Karen personally or Maybe just in passing, um, if you have the opportunity to swing by and just give her a hug and tell her that you're praying for her, or if you can't do that today, um, there's opportunities in the weeks to come to show up for her and her family, just to love on her and communicate to her that you are thinking of her. Um, probably be doing some meals for them in just the days ahead, but I uh, just wanted to share that with you and ask for your help and for your support in that matter. Um, but why don't we just start off in prayer and thinking of the family and praying for them, and then uh, we'll move into our, our time today. God, we come before you um, as a community, and uh, we just ask for your love and support. And in hard times and good times, we know that you surround us, and your peace that we can't even fathom comes and settles in, that you bring strength and comfort, and you surround us with love even in moments that seem unbearable. And so we come before you right now and we just ask on behalf of this family for Karen and for her children, for um, Ricky and Jennifer and Katie, and just we believe so strongly that your presence is with them as they are mourning the loss of this loved one, her son and their brother. Um, we just ask that as a community, we would um, call on you in moments we think of her, that we would think of this family in our prayers and in the weeks and days to come. We just ask that we would be aware of how we can best respond to support them and, and extend love to them as a family and as a church and as a community. And so we ask that you be with them today in this hard day, and we love you for it. Amen. So this morning, we are actually going to be um, starting this book back over. So we, 
If those of you that know, we started this book, We Make the Road by Walking, we actually started um, kind of midway through the book because we picked it up around Easter, and we've been working through the chapters. There's 52 chapters, so we're sharing with you a chapter per week, but we've actually come full circle, and we've started on chapter one. So we're, we're starting back um, at the actual beginning of the book, and that's where we'll be um, with our discussion today. So I want to introduce to you a phrase or a concept that perhaps is something that you've heard of or thought of, but maybe actually never put into practice, or perhaps it's not something that is just, um, it's not our nature to just think this way or to, um, to approach our days this way. But I want to share with you, um, the title of the chapter is called Awe and Wonder. But as I was reading and kind of researching and looking into um, different angles on this particular topic, um, over and over again, I kept seeing this phrase, and it was called awism. And so it's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue very easily, but, and it's not something that we perhaps say in conversation with one another, how's your awism today? You know, but it is this concept that it's something that I believe that we were created to do, to do and yet it's very difficult for us to slow down enough to be able to participate in what it is all about. So I'm going to do my best to tell you some moments of awe-ism, just for my life personally, and then we're going to continue to kind of develop this conversation. So for me, there was something growing up in Perrysburg, Ohio. I lived in this little tiny historic town, and I lived on one of the historic streets of Perrysburg. So the house I grew up in was well over 100 years old. It was like, you know, my dad, the constant work project, because something was always broken, something was always falling apart. But where we lived, we were actually in the historic original part of the town. So there were, we were surrounded by streets that had all of these old homes. And the one street that I recall and I think about, and in fact, it is something that I, when we go back into town, like I make Jeff drive us on the street because it is the street that like, I feel like I was made to live in. Now, I'm not telling you that I'm moving there, but... This particular street had these just grand old homes. It's called Front Street. And there was something about Front Street to me that just every single time our family would drive, and we had to drive along Front Street to get to my cousin's house because across the Mommy River was where my aunts and uncles and my cousins all lived. So we would drive along Front Street. And I promise you, like, I've studied every single house on Front Street. Like, I know which house comes around the corner. I know which house is on the corner. I know the house that looks like a dollhouse. I know the house that has a wraparound porch. And, and like I kid you not, there was this one particular house that every single time we would pass it, I would announce to my family, there's my house. Like that's where I was supposed to live. It's this navy blue house with the white steps on the front and it's got a white wraparound porch and it sits on the corner. And so much so that my sisters would anticipate that I was going to say this and we would get ready to pass the navy blue house and I would be ready to say, there's my house. And they would say, we know, Jody. like, we know it's your house. Um, and they would kind of roll their eyes at me. There was something about that front street. There's still something about front street. And there was something about growing up, living at, um, right down the road from my grandparents, and we would spend late nights in their backyard climbing all the apple trees. And there was one particular tree that I was captivated by, and I would tell my cousins and my sisters, that's my tree. Like, kind of back off. Like, that's my apple tree. And we would climb the apple trees. 
There was something about my grandma Baddock and her vegetable soup obsession. And every single meal, it didn't matter what the course that she was serving, she would always serve vegetable soup. That was like, it didn't matter if you're having pizza or spaghetti or tacos, you were having vegetable soup first. And she would say to us, um, you know, these vegetables are all from my garden. Every single time, it did not matter what, what we were having, she would always announce that. And there was just something about that to me. And there was something about my grandfather... My grandpa Nichols, he had so many Michigan cardigans, it was not even funny. Like, I don't know how many he owned, but we, he was buried in one. And, um, like, he, would, he wore them all the time. There was, not, there was not another cardigan in his closet. Every U of M cardigan that he could have, he owned. And he would wear them all the time. And he would tell us jokes on repeat. I heard his jokes probably more times than not. And I never had the heart to tell him, I heard this one yesterday. <laughs> But there was something about him. And there was something about, I remember the day of my senior prom, I worked at a nail salon, hair place, and the girls decided that they were just going to take over and like doll me all up. I was the receptionist. And so they spent the whole day doing my hair and my makeup and I had this beautiful dress. And I remember that day, like feeling like there was nothing that, like I was never going to be more beautiful. And I remember, um, I remember, you know, moments later, it just seemed like a blink the day that I got married. And I remember thinking, I've never been more grand than I am right now. You know, walking out to a room of people that loved me with my dad. It just, you know, a moment of awe and a moment of wonder. I remember when Jeff and I were first married and uh, we had no money, you know, like every, all the rest of... You can probably recall that we loved to feed people. Even when we were first married, I remember we had this kitchen that had no space. Like you'd walk in the kitchen and you would open our refrigerator and it would hit the wall. That's how narrow it was. So you couldn't have two people in, or if one person was in, you had to be on this side of the refrigerator and the other person had to be on the other side completely. We had no space. But we would often borrow tables from the university and invite people over for dinner. We would sit out on our front lawn, you know, the one square piece of grass we had. And we would invite college students over to come and have dinner because it was fun. And we loved hospitality even back then. I remember learning, like, that was a really beautiful way to serve people. I remember the first time I arrived in Guatemala... I, um, I went to this village called Hortensia Antigua, and it was something that I, can, I will never forget, and it's the reason why I go back. And, in fact, I wore my happy shirt today because this shirt was given to me as a gift from, on my third trip back to Guatemala from a young man named Aurelio. And he had these beautiful looms set up in the village that we passed by every day when we would go use the restroom, um, the restroom at his house. And he was handicapped, and so he was a man in the village that couldn't go work the fields. And so he had learned this trade to be able to make money for his family. And I, would, I remember asking um, through the interpreter, you know, how did you make this? I mean, if you look at the shirt and you see it maybe afterwards, it's just the most beautiful thing you may have ever seen. And his response was, it's in here. He didn't have a pattern. He didn't have anything that he was working from. He just had it and he would create. And it was a moment that I will never forget. It was a moment of awe and wonder. The same is true for, you know, I already mentioned my grandfather, Nichols. But I remember going to his funeral 
And I remember learning things about him that I had never heard before. Story after story after story of people coming forward and just sharing about his life. And when we went to the grave site, it was, it was a, a Michigan M in flowers that was put over his, his casket. And I will never forget that. It was like a snapshot in time that I thought, I need to hang on to this. I need to remember. And I, uh, the same is true, um, you know, a few months ago. And I really didn't plan to do this, but sometimes when you think back on things of your life, you recognize the emotion that is tied to all the things that you've gone through to bring you to where you are today. But, you know, we've had multiple celebrations of life here at the Grove. And watching you all come together and surround families and love them and celebrate them, even in the raw moments that are so hard, those are moments of awe, aweism, and wonder. It's kind of like making a habit of collecting moments along the years. You know, moments of childhood when life is so simple and so easy, but also moments that are grand. Like holding my babies in the first time in my arms, you know, seeing that positive pregnancy test when we first discovered that we were going to have our Maisie. And then thinking, gosh, there's nothing more beautiful than this. There's nothing more wonderful than this. There are these moments in your life that are flashing before you all the time. And we are meant to collect them and to store them and to be in awe of them all the time. There's something to be said about each one of the moments that change us permanently. They're moments of awe. They're both beautiful and tragic and they change us forever. The concept of awe-ism is a practice that I believe is meant to keep us surrendering and humble because it helps us recognize that the miracle that is of us even being here right now. In chapter one from our book this week, Brian McLaren writes, the first and greatest surprise, a miracle really is this, that anything at all exists and that we get to be part of it. Ripe peaches, crisp apples, tall mountains, bright leaves, sparkling water, flying flocks, flickering flame, and you and me here, right now. If you think over your life with me, where are the moments that awed you the most? You know, we look at our children, I look at Roby, and she's like awed by everything, seriously. She's like, oh, there's a flower, you know, or... Like, oh, it's a piece of gum. Like every single thing is like a really big deal to her. But as we get older and life gets harder and things get more complicated, it is very difficult for us to exercise being in awe of the things that God places right before us. As simple as your favorite meal or as grand as the biggest moment that you could fathom, Each moment may be small, but over time, the accumulative sum of those moments outweighs the the, the smallness of those parts because you add them all up. The challenge here is that God intended to awe us again and again and again, filling up our lifetime with miraculous moments of seeing his presence in and through it all and keeping the ability to keep seeing And maybe it's hard for us to sit down and to write down those moments that are unforgettable, moments that have changed us forever. 
But over the first pages of scripture, even our very best thinkers and scientists would agree that all of this began in a, in a beginning, in the beginning. The Genesis story is the first recorded moments of awe. Aweism started when God said, let there be. The creative spirit of God said to a blank slate, let there be. And that's exactly what happened. Calling forth order and design, light and time and space and matter and motion and sea and stone and fish and sparrow and you and me. Learning to enjoy and experience the unspeakable gift and privilege of being here and being alive today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. And all came on the scene. And it continued to unfold. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, so to separate water from water. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. Verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. See, God tells us to eat our fruits and vegetables. So all y'all people who are haters right there. Verse 14, and God, I I was directing that towards Jeff, you know, but, um, and God said, let there be light in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to make seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to, to the earth. In verse 20, and God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across this expanse of the sky. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to all of their kinds. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock over all the earth and over the creatures that move along the ground. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because he rested from all the work of creating he had done. All came on the scene. And it continues to unfold. On page four in our first chapter here, Brian McLaren writes, Here we are in this galaxy, in this solar system, on this planet, in this story, around this table at this moment. With the chance for us to breathe and to think and to dream and to speak and to be alive together. The creator brought all of it into being, and now we find ourselves here. And don't we all feel like poets when we try to speak of the beauty and the wonder of this creation? Don't we share a common amazement about our cosmic neighborhood when we wake up to the fact that we are actually here, alive, right now? The romance of creator and creation is far more wonderful and profound than anyone could ever capture into words. 
how can we then not celebrate the gift that we have to be alive? The whole of creation teaches us that it is actually not all about us. We are not self-starters. And in fact, if it's a newsflash to some of us, we aren't really running the show here. But we are secondary to what God is doing all around us. We didn't get this whole thing started. And that's hard for us to imagine. But the creator put things into motion. And creation is God bringing things into being. It's kind of like that oomph, you know, into all the things that are and that the isness that, that we see right in front of us. The utter aliveness of God is everywhere we go and every nook and cranny that spans this earth. And we are, like I've said this many times before, but we're this tiny little peripheral dot on the whole of it, you know, and it is him who is holding us together. It is him who is holding all of creation by his power holding it into being continuously so that what we have is the present. That's what we see. But the reason we have access to the present and to creation is because we have been created. That is our access to this world, to this earth as we know it. And when we discover that we are secondary, that we are second in this whole big of things, that's the core of what we're supposed to recognize because it keeps us surrendering It keeps us humble. It keeps our egos downplayed because we see that we're just a small player in this big, big story. I wonder if it's possible that God is longing for us to break into these glorious mundane moments because he wants us to see the greatness of what we have been given. Moments of all that captivate us, that change us, that move us, They're the ones that are beautiful and the ones that are the most difficult. In reading Richard Rohr over the past few years, um, he's a Franciscan monk. He's written many books, and I have been a a big fan of his writings. But something that he introduced in a concept that I have not forgotten is him saying that God's first Bible is, in fact, the creation we see around us. And now, pause for a second. I do not want any of you people to leave here and say, the pastor's wife at the Grove does not like the Bible. It's not what I'm saying. I love the Bible. Um, And please note, there was no laughter. Come on. This is, I know this is serious, but I'm serious. Don't go out and say that Jody doesn't like the Bible. What he was saying though, and he was referring to Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas actually says that there are two books of scripture. The first book of scripture is this created world. What we look outside when we see the mountains and the streams and the beauty in the skies, the grass beneath our feet, that God was trying to communicate his greatness in the, in, in the vision that we see in front of us. And then he says, and then the second is the books of scripture. Now, if you think about this now, again, we're not having this topic discussion right now, but whether you believe in the old world, the new world, whether you believe that the world is 14 billion years old or 6,000 years old, or you're somewhere in between. Okay. The point is scripture, our written scripture has been with us for about 2000 years and the earth, whether you believe in old, new, we're not going to argue about that this morning, but whether, whatever place you find yourself in, the reality is, is that it outdates the, the written scriptures. Okay, so the, what we have on these pages, we've had for about 2,000 years. The earth, 
even if it's a new earth idea, you're still thinking that that's about 6,000 years up to maybe 14 billion. The story's still out. Wherever you find yourself at, the created earth, the created vision of God has been with us longer than the pages that we read of scripture. So is it possible that we're still not paying attention enough to what God has placed right in front of us to see Sometimes I think in the last 2000 years, we maybe have become more committed to being right and wrong and debating and who believes this and who doesn't believe this. And my church says this because of scripture that we've kind of divorced that from the experience of the creation that we're surrounded by. And I can't, I can't imagine that we're meant to take those apart from each other. You can't have one and toss out the other, right? Romans 1:20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So here we see that from the onset of the created world, God has been on display in all his glory, in all the beauty, in all of the things that we see that we're surrounded by. If we give most of our attention to perhaps the written book and we limit, limit our experiences with direct life encounters and moments where we see, we're maybe not collecting the moments of all that God has placed us to notice and to take snapshots of and to remember over our life. And one without the other, it takes away the raw connectedness of God's imprint that he has placed on all of creation and all of humanity. So I feel like what I want to tell you guys about awism is that it's the posture that you approach how you see what God is doing. So taking the combination of reading the pages and the story that's unfolding in scripture the Holy Scripture, the things that we see, the stories that we're learning, and taking that opportunity to match that with what we see right in front of us. So whether that's relationships that you have with each other, whether it's your family, whether it's your home, whether it's taking a hike up Deep Creek and seeing the beautiful waterfall, he's choosing to communicate to us all the time. I love the idea that perhaps creation is our very first cathedral. That it is the trees and the stars and the mountains and the streams and the oceans that never stop singing the glory and the greatness of God. So when you are drawn to kneel in the cathedral, the first cathedral, there's always a big connection between a mystery that is much larger and much grander and bigger than we are. And when you see that great mystery for as grand of a miracle that it really is, it doesn't require a theology class or a debate or an argument or proving or my church and this church, but that cathedral is not a self-serving or a self-seeking cathedral. It is full of awe-ism and it is full of wonder. And it is meant for us to surrender, to be humbled by it, and to recognize that we have this gift to see I'm going to um, ask the band to come on up. And as they're doing that, I want to read you the, the passage that Jeff started out reading today in Psalm 19. I'm going to read you guys the full chapter in Psalm 19, 
verses 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, I'm sorry, in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for under the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out from his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises up at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to another. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect and refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant away from willful sins. May they not rule over him. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And the last verse there, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I would invite you to stand or wherever you feel comfortable if you'd like to stay seated, but the band is going to lead us in a couple of songs. And I would love for you to participate in that, um, whether it's singing or contemplating the words, making it your prayer. Um, Please join them and, um, and worship with us.